Book Four, Section Nineteen of Tusculan Disputations by Cicero, translated by Charles Duke Young. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Nineteen. Why should I say more? Why should I add that the peripatetics say that these perturbations which we insist upon it should be extirpated are not only natural, but were given to men by nature for a good purpose? They usually talk in this manner. In the first place they say much in praise of anger. They call it the whetstone of courage, and they say that angry men exert themselves most against an enemy or against a bad citizen that those reasons are of little weight which are the motives of men who think thus as it is a just war it becomes us to fight for our laws our liberties our country they will allow no force to these arguments unless our courage is warmed by anger nor do they confine their argument to warriors but their opinion is that no one can issue any rigid commands without some bitterness and anger in short they have no notion of an orator either accusing or even defending a client without he is spurred on by anger and though this anger should not be real still they think his words and gestures ought to wear the appearance of it so that the action of the orator may excite the anger of his hearer and they deny that any man has ever been seen who does not know what it is to be angry and they name what we call lenity by the bad appellation of indolence. Nor do they commend only this lust, for anger is, as I defined it above, the lust of revenge. But they maintain that kind of lust or desire to be given us by nature for very good purposes, saying that no one can execute anything well but what he is in earnest about. Themistocles used to walk in the public places in the night because he could not sleep, and when asked the reason his answer was that Miltiades' trophies kept him awake. Who has not heard how Demosthenes used to watch, who said that it gave him pain if any mechanic was up in a morning at his work before him? Lastly, they urge that some of the greatest philosophers would never have made that progress in their studies without some ardent desire spurring them on. We are informed that Pythagoras, Democritus, and Plato visited the remotest parts of the world, for they thought that they ought to go wherever anything was to be learned. Now it is not conceivable that these things could be effected by anything but by the greatest ardor of mind. 20. They say that even grief, which we have already said ought to be avoided as a monstrous and fierce beast, was appointed by nature, not without some good purpose, in order that men should lament when they had committed a fault, well knowing they had exposed themselves to correction, rebuke, and ignominy. For they think that those who can bear ignominy and infamy without pain have acquired a complete impunity for all sorts of crimes for with them reproach is a stronger check than conscience. From whence we have that scene in Afranius borrowed from common life. For when the abandoned son saith, Wretched that I am, the severe father replies, Let him but grieve, no matter what the cause. And they say the other divisions of sorrow have their use. 
that pity incites us to hasten to the assistance of others and to alleviate the calamities of men who have undeservedly fallen into them that even envy and detraction are not without their use as when a man sees that another person has attained what he cannot or observes another to be equally successful with himself that he who should take away fear would take away all industry in life which those men exert in the greatest degree who are afraid of the laws and of the magistrates who dread poverty ignominy death and pain but while they argue thus they allow indeed of these feelings being retrenched though they deny that they either can or should be plucked up by the roots so that their opinion is that mediocrity is best in everything when they reason in this manner what think you is what they say worth attending to or not a i think it is i wait therefore to hear what you will say in reply to them twenty one m perhaps i may find something to say but i will make this observation first do you take notice with what modesty the academics behave themselves for they speak plainly to the purpose the peripatetics are answered by the stoics they have my leave to fight it out who think myself no otherwise concerned than to inquire for what may seem to be most probable our present business is then to see if we can meet with anything in this question which is the probable for beyond such approximation to truth as that human nature cannot proceed the definition of a perturbation as zeno i think has rightly determined it is thus that a perturbation is a commotion of the mind against nature in opposition to right reason or more briefly thus that a perturbation is a somewhat too vehement appetite and when he says somewhat too vehement he means such as is at a greater distance from the constant course of nature what can i say to these definitions the greater part of them we have from those who dispute with sagacity and acuteness some of them expressions indeed such as the ardors of the mind and the whetstones of virtue savoring of the pomp of rhetoricians as to the question if a brave man can maintain his courage without becoming angry it may be questioned with regard to the gladiators though we often observe much resolution even in them they meet converse they make objections and demands they agree about terms so that they seem calm rather than angry but let us admit a man of the name of placideanus who was one of that trade to be in such a mind as lucilius relates of him if for his blood you thirst the task be mine his laurels at my feet he shall resign not but i know before i reach his heart first on myself a wound he will impart i hate the man enraged i fight and straight in action we had been but that i wait till each his sword had fitted to his hand my rage i scarce can keep within command twenty two but we see ajax in homer advancing to meet hector in battle cheerfully without any of this boisterous wrath for he had no sooner taken up his arms than the first step which he made inspired his associates with joy his enemies with fear so that even hector 
as he is represented by Homer, trembling, condemned himself for having challenged him to fight. Yet these heroes conversed together, calmly and quietly, before they engaged, nor did they show any anger or outrageous behavior during the combat. Nor do I imagine that Torquatus, the first who obtained this surname, was in a rage when he plundered the gall of his collar, or that Marcellus's courage at Clastidium was only owing to his anger. I could almost swear that Africanus, with whom we are better acquainted, from our recollection of him being more recent, was no ways inflamed by anger when he covered Alianus Pelignus with his shield, and drove his sword into the enemy's breast. There may be some doubt of Lucius Brutus, whether he was not influenced by extraordinary hatred of the tyrant, so as to attack Aaron's with more than usual rashness, for I observe that they mutually killed each other in close fight. Why, then, do you call in the assistance of anger? Would courage, unless it began to get furious, lose its energy? What? Do you imagine that Hercules, whom the very courage which you would try to represent as anger, raised to heaven, was angry when he engaged the Arimanthian boar or the Nemean lion? Or was Theseus in a passion when he seized on the horns of the Marathonian bull? Take care how you make courage to depend in the least on rage, for anger is altogether irrational, and that is not courage which is void of reason. 23. We ought to hold all things here in contempt. Death is to be looked on with indifference. Pains and labors must be considered as easily supportable. And when these sentiments are established on judgment and conviction, then will that stout and firm courage take place, unless you attribute to anger whatever is done with vehemence, alacrity, and spirit. To me, indeed, that very Scipio, who was chief priest, that favorer of the saying of the Stoics, that no private man could be a wise man, does not seem to be angry with Tiberius Gracchus, even when he left the consul in a hesitating frame of mind, and, though a private man himself, commanded, with the authority of a consul, that all who meant well to the Republic should follow him. I do not know whether I have done anything in the Republic that has the appearance of courage, but if I have, I certainly did not do it in wrath. Doth anything come nearer madness than anger? And indeed Aeneas has well defined it as the beginning of madness. The changing color, the alteration of our voice, the look of our eyes, our manner of fetching our breath, the little command we have over our words and actions, how little do all these things indicate a sound mind? What can make a worse appearance than Homer's Achilles, or Agamemnon during the quarrel? And, as to Ajax, anger drove him into downright madness, and was the occasion of his death. Courage, therefore, does not want the assistance of anger. It is sufficiently provided, armed, and prepared of itself. We may as well say that drunkenness or madness is of service to courage, because those who are mad or drunk often do a great many things with unusual vehemence. Ajax was always brave, but still he was most brave when he was in that state of frenzy. 
the greatest fate that ajax e'er achieved was when his single arm the greeks relieved quitting the field urged on by rising rage forced the declining troops again to engage shall we say then that madness has its use twenty four examine the definitions of courage you will find it does not require the assistance of passion courage is then an affection of mind that endures all things being itself in proper subjection to the highest of all laws or it may be called a firm maintenance of judgment in supporting or repelling everything that has a formidable appearance or a knowledge of what is formidable or otherwise and maintaining invariably a stable judgment of all such things so as to bear them or despise them or in fewer words according to chrysippus for the above definitions are spyruses a man of the first ability as a layer down of definitions as the stoics think but they are all pretty much alike they give us only common notions some one way and some another but what is chrysippus's definition fortitude says he is the knowledge of all things that are bearable or an affection of the mind which bears and supports everything in obedience to the chief law of reason without fear now though we should attack these men in the same manner as carneades used to do i fear they are the only real philosophers for which of these definitions is there which does not explain that obscure and intricate notion of courage which every man conceives within himself and when it is thus explained what can a warrior a commander or an orator want more and no one can think that they will be unable to behave themselves courageously without anger what do not even the stoics who maintain that all fools are mad make the same inferences for take away perturbations especially a hastiness of temper and they will appear to talk very absurdly but what they assert is this they say that all fools are mad as all dunghills stink not that they always do so but stir them and you will perceive it and in like manner a warm-tempered man is not always in a passion but provoke him and you will see him run mad now that very warlike anger which is of such service in war what is the use of it to him when he is at home with his wife children and family is there then anything that a disturbed mind can do better than one which is calm and steady or can any one be angry without a perturbation of mind our people then were in the right who as all vices depend on our manners and nothing is worse than a passionate disposition called angry men the only morose men twenty five anger is in no wise becoming in an orator though it is not amiss to affect it do you imagine that i am angry when in pleading i use any extraordinary vehemence and sharpness what when i write out my speeches after all is over and past am i then angry while writing or do you think isopos was ever angry when he acted or Axius was so when he wrote those men indeed act very well but the orator acts better than the player provided he be really an orator but then they carry it on without passion and with a composed mind but what wantonness is it to commend lust you produce themistocles and demosthenes 
to these you add pythagoras democritus and plato what do you then call studies lust but these studies of the most excellent and admirable things such as those were which you bring forward on all occasions ought to be composed and tranquil and what kind of philosophers are they who commend grief than which nothing is more detestable afranius has said much to this purpose let him but grieve no matter what the cause but he spoke this of a debauched and dissolute youth but we are inquiring into the conduct of a constant and wise man we may even allow a centurion or standard-bearer to be angry or any others whom not to explain too far the mysteries of the rhetoricians i shall not mention here for to touch the passions where reason cannot become at may have its use but my inquiry as i often repeat is about a wise man twenty six but even envy detraction pity have their use why should you pity rather than assist if it is in your power to do so is it because you cannot be liberal without pity we should not take sorrows on ourselves upon another's account but we ought to relieve others of their grief if we can but to detract from another's reputation or to rival him with that vicious emulation which resembles an enmity of what use can that conduct be now envy implies being uneasy at another's good because one does not enjoy it oneself but detraction is the being uneasy at another's good merely because he enjoys it how can it be right that you should voluntarily grieve rather than take the trouble of acquiring what you want to have for it is madness in the highest degree to desire to be the only one that has any particular happiness but who can with correctness speak in praise of a mediocrity of evils can any one in whom there is lust or desire be otherwise than libidinous or desirous or can a man who is occupied by anger avoid being angry or can one who is exposed to any vexation escape being vexed or if he is under the influence of fear must he not be fearful do we look then on the libidinous the angry the anxious and the timid man as persons of wisdom of excellence of which i could speak very copiously and diffusely but i wish to be as concise as possible and so i will merely say that wisdom is an acquaintance with all divine and human affairs and a knowledge of the cause of everything hence it is that it imitates what is divine and looks upon all human concerns as inferior to virtue did you then say that it was your opinion that such a man was as naturally liable to perturbation as the sea is exposed to winds what is there that can discompose such gravity and constancy anything sudden or unforeseen how can anything of this kind befall one to whom nothing is sudden and unforeseen that can happen to man now as to their saying that redundancies should be paired off and only what is natural remain what i pray you can be natural which may be too exuberant twenty seven all these assertions proceed from the roots of errors which must be entirely plucked up and destroyed not pared and amputated but 
as i suspect that your inquiry is not so much respecting the wise man as concerning yourself for you allow that he is free from all perturbations and you would willingly be so to yourself let us see what remedies there are which may be applied by philosophy to the diseases of the mind there is certainly some remedy nor has nature been so unkind to the human race as to have discovered so many things salutary to the body and none which are medicinal to the mind she has even been kinder to the mind than to the body inasmuch as you must seek abroad for the assistance which the body requires while the mind has all that it requires within itself but in proportion as the excellency of the mind is of a higher and more divine nature the more diligence does it require and therefore reason when it is well applied discovers what is best but when it is neglected it becomes involved in many errors i shall apply then all my discourse to you for though you pretend to be inquiring about the wise man your inquiry may possibly be about yourself various then are the cures of those perturbations which i have expounded for every disorder is not to be appeased the same way one medicine must be applied to the man who mourns another to the pitiful another to the person who envies for there is this difference to be maintained in all the four perturbations we are to consider whether our discourse had better be directed to perturbations in general which are a contempt of reason or a somewhat too vehement appetite or whether it would be better applied to particular descriptions as for instance to fear lust and the rest and whether it appears preferable to endeavour to remove that which has occasioned the grief or rather to attempt wholly to eradicate every kind of grief as should any one grieve that he is poor the question is would you maintain poverty to be no evil or would you contend that a man ought not to grieve at anything certainly this last is the best course for should you not convince him with regard to poverty you must allow him to grieve but if you remove grief by particular arguments such as i used yesterday the evil of poverty is in some manner removed twenty eight but any perturbation of the mind of this sort may be as it were wiped away by the method of appeasing the mind if you succeed in showing that there is no good in that which has given rise to joy and lust nor any evil in that which has occasioned fear or grief but certainly the most effectual cure is to be achieved by showing that all perturbations are of themselves vicious and have nothing natural or necessary in them as we see grief itself is easily softened when we charge those who grieve with weakness and an effeminate mind or when we commend the gravity and constancy of those who bear calmly whatever befalls them here as accidents to which all men are liable and indeed this is generally the feeling of those who look on these as real evils but yet think they should be borne with resignation one imagines pleasure to be a good another money and yet the one may be called off from intemperance the other from covetousness the other method and address which at the same time that it removes the false opinion withdraws the disorder has more subtlety in it but it seldom succeeds and is not applicable to vulgar minds for there are some diseases which that medicine can by no means remove 
For should anyone be uneasy because he is without virtue, without courage, destitute of a sense of duty or honesty, his anxiety proceeds from a real evil, and yet we must apply another method of cure to him, and such a one as all the philosophers, however they may differ about other things, agree in. For they must necessarily agree in this, that commotions of the mind in opposition to right reason are vicious, and that even admitting those things to be evils which occasion fear or grief, and those to be goods which provoke desire or joy, yet that very commotion itself is vicious, for we mean by the expressions magnanimous and brave, one who is resolute, sedate, grave, and superior to everything in this life, but one who either grieves or fears or covets, or is transported with passion, cannot come under that denomination, for these things are consistent only with those who look on the things of this world as things with which their minds are unequal to contend. 29. Wherefore, as I before said, the philosophers have all one method of cure, so that we need say nothing about what sort of thing that is which disturbs the mind, but we must speak only concerning the perturbation itself. Thus, first, with regard to desire itself, when the business is only to remove that, the inquiry is not to be whether that thing be good or evil which provokes lust, but the lust itself is to be removed, so that whether whatever is honest is the chief good, or whether it consists in pleasure, or in both these things together, or in the other three kinds of goods, yet should there be in any one too vehement an appetite for even virtue itself, the whole discourse should be directed to the deterring him from that vehemence. But human nature, when placed in a conspicuous point of view, gives us every argument for appeasing the mind, and, to make this the more distinct, the laws and conditions of life should be explained in our discourse. Therefore, it was not without reason that Socrates is reported when Euripides was exhibiting his play called Orestes, to have repeated the first three verses of that tragedy. What tragic story men can mournful tell, what e'er from fate or from the gods befell, that human nature can support. But in order to persuade those to whom any misfortune has happened that they can and ought to bear it, it is very useful to set before them an enumeration of other persons who have borne similar calamities. Indeed, the method of appeasing grief was explained in my dispute of yesterday, and in my book on consolation, which I wrote in the midst of my own grief, for I was not myself so wise a man as to be insensible to grief, and I used this, notwithstanding Chrysippus's advice to the contrary, who is against applying a medicine to the agitations of the mind while they are fresh. But I did it, and committed a violence on nature, that the greatness of my grief might give way to the greatness of the medicine. 30. But fear borders upon grief, of which I have already said enough, but I must say a little more on that. Now as grief proceeds from what is present, so does fear from future evil, so that some have said that fear is a certain part of grief. Others have called fear the harbinger of trouble, which, as it were, introduces the ensuing evil. 
Now the reasons that make what is present supportable make what is to come very contemptible, for with regard to both we should take care to do nothing low or grovelling, soft or effeminate, mean or abject, but notwithstanding we should speak of the inconstancy, imbecility, and levity of fear itself, yet it is of very great service to speak contemptuously of those very things of which we are afraid, so that it fell out very well, whether it was by accident or design, that I disputed the first and second day on death and pain, the two things that are the most dreaded. Now, if what I then said was approved of, we are in a great degree freed from fear, and this is sufficient as far as regards the opinion of evils. 31. Proceed we now to what are goods, that is to say, to joy and desire. To me, indeed, one thing alone seems to embrace the question of all that relates to the perturbations of the mind, the fact, namely, that all perturbations are in our own power, that they are taken up upon opinion, and are voluntary. This error, then, must be got rid of, this opinion must be removed, and as with regard to imagined evils we are to make them more supportable, so, with respect to goods, we are to lessen the violent effects of those things which are called great and joyous. But one thing is to be observed, that equally relates both to good and evil, that should it be difficult to persuade any one that none of those things which disturb the mind are to be looked on as good or evil, yet a different cure is to be applied to different feelings, and the malevolent person is to be corrected by one way of reasoning, the lover by another the anxious man by another, and the fearful by another, and it would be easy for any one who pursues the best approved method of reasoning with regard to good and evil to maintain that no fool can be affected with joy, as he never can have anything good. But at present my discourse proceeds upon the common received notions. Let, then, honours, riches, pleasures, and the rest be the very good things which they are imagined to be yet a too elevated and exulting joy on the possession of them is unbecoming, just as, though it might be allowable to laugh, to giggle would be indecent. Thus a mind enlarged by joy is as blamable as a contraction of it by grief, and eager longing is a sign of as much levity in desiring as immoderate joy is in possessing, and as those who are too dejected are said to be effeminate, so they who are too elated with joy are properly called volatile, and as feeling envy is a part of grief, and the being pleased with another's misfortune is a kind of joy, both these feelings are usually corrected by showing the wildness and insensibility of them, and as it becomes a man to be cautious, but it is unbecoming in him to be fearful, so to be pleased is proper, but to be joyful improper. I have, in order that I might be the better understood, distinguished pleasure from joy. I have already said above that a contraction of the mind can never be right, but that an elation of it may, for the joy of Hector in Naivius is one thing. Tis joy indeed to hear my praises sung by you, who are the theme of honour's tongue, but that of the character in Trabea another. 
the kind procuress allured by my money will observe my nod will watch my desires and study my will if i but move the door with my little finger instantly it flies open and if crucis should unexpectedly discover me she will run with joy to meet me and throw herself into my arms now he will tell you how excellent he thinks this not even fortune herself is so fortunate thirty two any one who attends the least to the subject will be convinced how unbecoming this joy is and as they are very shameful who are immoderately delighted with the enjoyment of venereal pleasures so are they very scandalous who lust vehemently after them and all that which is commonly called love and believe me i can find out no other name to call it by is of such a trivial nature that nothing i think is to be compared to it of which caecilius says i hold the man of every sense bereaved who grants not love to be of gods the chief whose mighty power whate'er is good effects who gives to each his beauty and defects hence health and sickness wit and folly hence the god that love and hatred doth dispense an excellent corrector of life the same poetry which thinks that love the promoter of debauchery and vanity should have a place in the council of the gods i am speaking of comedy which could not subsist at all without our approving of these debaucheries but what said that chief of the argonauts in tragedy my life i owe to honour less than love what then are we to say of this love of medea what a train of miseries did it occasion and yet the same woman has the assurance to say to her father in another poet that she had a husband dearer by love than ever fathers were thirty three however we may allow the poets to trifle in whose fables we see jupiter himself engaged in these debaucheries but let us apply to the masters of virtue the philosophers who deny love to be anything carnal and in this they differ from epicurus who i think is not much mistaken for what is that love of friendship how comes it that no one is in love with a deformed young man or a handsome old one i am of opinion that this love of men had its rise from the gymnastics of the greeks where these kinds of loves are admissible and permitted therefore aeneas spoke well the censure of this crime to those is due who naked bodies first expose to view now supposing them chaste which i think is hardly possible they are uneasy and distressed and the more so because they contain and refrain themselves but to pass over the love of women where nature has allowed more liberty who can misunderstand the poets in their rape of ganymede or not apprehend what laius says and what he desires in euripides lastly what have the principal poets and the most learned men published of themselves in their poems and songs what doth alcaeus who was distinguished in his own republic for his bravery write on the love of young men and as for anacreon's poetry it is wholly on love but ibicus of regium appears from his writings to have had this love stronger on him than all the rest thirty four now we see that the loves of all these writers were entirely libidinous 
there have risen also some among us philosophers and plato is at the head of them whom disiarchus blames not without reason who have countenanced love the stoics in truth say not only that their wise man may be a lover but they even define love itself as an endeavour to originate friendship out of the appearance of beauty now provided there is any one in the nature of things without desire without care without a sigh such a one may be a lover for he is free from all lust but i have nothing to say to him as it is lust of which i am now speaking but should there be any love as there certainly is which is but little or perhaps not at all short of madness such as his is in the lucadia should there be any god whose care i am it is incumbent on all the gods to see that he enjoys his amorous pleasure wretch that i am nothing is more true and he says very appropriately what are you sane who at this rate lament he seems even to his friends to be out of his senses then how tragical he becomes thy aid divine apollo i implore and thine dread ruler of the watery store oh all ye winds assist me he thinks that the whole world ought to apply itself to help his love he excludes venus alone as unkind to him thy aid o venus why should i invoke he thinks venus too much employed in her own lust to have regard to anything else as if he himself had not said and committed these shameful things from lust thirty five now the cure for one who is affected in this manner is to show how light how contemptible how very trifling he is in what he desires how he may turn his affections to another object or accomplish his desires by some other means or else to persuade him that he may entirely disregard it sometimes he is to be led away to objects of another kind to study business or other different engagements and concerns very often the cure is effected by change of place as sick people that have not recovered their strength are benefited by change of air some people think an old love may be driven out by a new one as one nail drives out another but above all things the man thus afflicted should be advised what madness love is for of all the perturbations of the mind there is not one which is more vehement for without charging it with rapes debaucheries adultery or even incest the baseness of any of these being very blamable not i say to mention these the very perturbation of the mind in love is base of itself for to pass over all its acts of downright madness what weakness do not those very things which are looked upon as indifferent argue affronts and jealousies jars squabbles wars then peace again the man who seeks to fix these restless feelings and to subjugate them to some regular law is just as wise as one who try to lay down rules by which men should go mad now is not this inconstancy and mutability of mind enough to deter any one by its own deformity we are to demonstrate as was said of every perturbation that there are no such feelings which do not consist entirely of opinion and judgment and are not owing to ourselves for if love were natural all would be in love and always so 
and all love the same object nor would one be deterred by shame another by reflection another by satiety thirty six anger too when it disturbs the mind any time leaves no room to doubt its being madness by the instigation of which we see such contention as this between brothers where was there ever impudence like thine who on thy malice ever could refine you know what follows for abuses are thrown out by these brothers with great bitterness in every other verse so that you may easily know them for the sons of atreus of that atreus who invented a new punishment for his brother i who his cruel heart to gall am bent some new unheard-of torment must invent now what were these inventions here thyestes my impious brother fain would have me eat my children and thus serves them up for meat to what length now will not anger go even as far as madness therefore we say properly enough that angry men have given up their power that is they are out of the power of advice reason and understanding for these ought to have power over the whole mind now you should put those out of the way whom they endeavour to attack till they have recollected themselves but what does recollection here imply by getting together again the dispersed parts of their mind into their proper place or else you must beg and entreat them if they have the means of revenge to defer it to another opportunity till their anger cools but the expression of cooling implies certainly that there was a heat raised in their minds in opposition to reason from which consideration that saying of archytas is commended who being somewhat provoked at his steward how would i have treated you said he if i had not been in a passion thirty seven where then are they who say that anger has its use can madness be of any use but still it is natural can anything be natural that is against reason or how is it if anger is natural that one person is more inclined to anger than another or that the lust of revenge should cease before it has revenged itself or that any one should repent of what he had done in a passion as we see that alexander the king did who could scarcely keep his hands from himself when he had killed his favourite clutus so great was his compunction now who that is acquainted with these instances can doubt that this motion of the mind is altogether in opinion and voluntary for who can doubt that disorders of the mind such as covetousness and a desire of glory arise from a great estimation of those things by which the mind is disordered from whence we may understand that every perturbation of the mind is founded in opinion and if boldness that is to say a firm assurance of mind is a kind of knowledge and serious opinion not hastily taken up then diffidence is a fear of an expected and impending evil and if hope is an expectation of good fear must of course be an expectation of evil thus fear and other perturbations are evils therefore as constancy proceeds from knowledge so does perturbation from error now they who are said to be naturally inclined to anger or to pity or to envy or to any feeling of this kind their minds are constitutionally as it were in bad health yet they are curable as the disposition of socrates is said to have been 
for when Zopirus, who professed to know the character of every one from his person, had heaped a great many vices on him in a public assembly, he was laughed at by others who could perceive no such vices in Socrates. But Socrates kept him in countenance by declaring that such vices were natural to him, but that he had got the better of them by his reason. Therefore, as any one who has the appearance of the best constitution may yet appear to be naturally rather inclined to some particular disorder, so different minds may be more particularly inclined to different diseases. But as to those men who are said to be vicious, not by nature, but their own fault, their vices proceed from wrong opinions of good and bad things, so that one is more prone than another to different motions and perturbations. But, just as it is in the case of the body, an inveterate disease is harder to be got rid of than a sudden disorder, and it is more easy to cure a fresh tumour in the eyes than to remove a defluxion of any continuance. 38. But, as the cause of perturbations is now discovered, for all of them arise from the judgment or opinion or volition, I shall put an end to this discourse. But we ought to be assured, since the boundaries of good and evil are now discovered, as far as they are discoverable by man, that nothing can be desired of philosophy greater or more useful than the discussions which we have held these four days. For besides instilling a contempt of death, and relieving pain so as to enable men to bear it, we have added the appeasing of grief, than which there is no greater evil to man. For though every perturbation of mind is grievous, and differs but little from madness, yet we are used to say of others, when they are under any perturbation, as of fear, joy, or desire, that they are agitated and disturbed. But of those who give themselves up to grief, that they are miserable, afflicted, wretched, unhappy, so that it doth not seem to be by accident, but with reason proposed by you, that I should discuss grief and the other perturbations separately. For there lies the spring and head of all our miseries. But the cure of grief and of other disorders is one and the same, in that they are all voluntary and founded on opinion. We take them on ourselves because it seems right so to do. Philosophy undertakes to eradicate this error as the root of all our evils. Let us, therefore, surrender ourselves to be instructed by it, and suffer ourselves to be cured. For while these evils have possession of us, we not only cannot be happy, but cannot be right in our minds. We must either deny that reason can effect anything, while, on the other hand, nothing can be done right without reason, or else, since philosophy depends on the deductions of reason, we must seek from her, if we would be good or happy, every help and assistance for living well and happily. End of section 38 and end of book 4